welcome to another installment of Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a lot of eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am, as always, your humble correspondent and host. My name is John Steinberg, and I am joined in concert by my esteemed co-host, who goes by the name of... Santino Maoni, you guessed it, back again for another great episode of Visionaries. I'm going to kick us off with words to live by this week. I chose the quote, and John, you know this. Our listeners might not, depending on who you are, but I am a huge LeBron James fan, my favorite athlete of all time. And I went with a quote that LeBron had said during his Miami Heat days throughout his NBA career. Here's the quote. Success isn't owned, it's leased, and the rent is due every day. Now, John, when you hear that quote, what's your reaction to it? Avoiding complacency at all costs. So with respect to an athlete at the pinnacle of his profession in the way that LeBron James happens to be, we can interpret this to mean making a commitment each and every single day to remain at the top of your chosen profession. So we know with him, he spends, I believe this is a quote from his own mouth, at least a million dollars a year on his own body alone. This, nothing to do with uh, training. It's this is just his own body, like the most for at least a professional basketball player, rudimentary upkeep uh, that, that you can get for someone such as him who dealt with being the villain in Miami when this quote, um, you know, when he said this, it's flying in the face of all of the hate and antipathy, remaining committed to your vision and doing what you have to do each and every day in, in order to get there. Very interesting stuff. So, Santino, what made you select this particular quote from your most favorite athlete? So, I mean, again, like you said, obviously he's my favorite athlete. That's part of the reason I chose the quote. The other aspect of it was, though, like you had alluded to, he's really talking about just not becoming complacent and looking at it from a perspective of LeBron James and what he's done throughout his career. There was a period within his career where he made eight straight NBA finals and was playing well into June every single season. That takes a certain mindset to not be complacent, to have that mindset of success is not owned. You have to earn it every single day. You have to pay your dues every single day and go out and get what you want. And he did that for eight straight seasons in in terms of making it to the NBA Finals. And anyone who hears that quote should apply it to their own life no matter how small or large the task may be or how large or small somebody else may perceive that task to be. You need to go into every situation, again, every endeavor that you want to pursue and pursue it with this mindset of, if I want to succeed, I need to go chase it every single day. In the terms of what LeBron James said, success isn't owned, it's leased, and the rent is due every day. You have to pay your way forward every single day and work for what you want. And it's, it was, it's an inspiration to me in terms of hearing this quote, because again, like myself, I'm somebody who wants to work in the sports industry. I want to work in sports media. I want to become a sports journalist. And in order to get to that point, I need to work every single day. I need to be 
constantly creating content, trying to get internships, doing stuff like that. And this is a quote that I've, I heard before when I was younger, when I watched LeBron, when he was on the Miami heat, and it was something that kind of kept me going and kept me in that strong mindset of knowing, obviously you can, you can celebrate your accomplishments. You can be proud of yourself, but always keep going. Always try to pay the rent that is due every day in whatever you want to accomplish. And you know, what's interesting too, with, uh, with LeBron, if you contrast a quote like this with, oh, the actions of former teammate Kyrie Irving, who seems to be perpetually dining out on a shot that he hit in the 2016 NBA Finals. Yep. It's pretty stark that we are six years on from the Kyrie Irving shot in the Finals and still seems like his main go-to um, whenever you talk about him, you have to say, Oh, well he hit that shot in the finals. Remember that? That was incredible. And yeah, and it was, but this idea of, Hey, look, every day, every month, the rent is going to come due and you are going to have to meet those financial obligations or you're going to be out on the street. Yeah. And which LeBron has continued to do, continue to do in terms of just looking at it from an NBA perspective, won the NBA championship in 2020. And he's just been able to maintain his level of play throughout those six years since that 2016 finals victory. So it, it is interesting how you kind of, you can con- compare and contrast those two of Kyrie and LeBron and just kind of see how LeBron has almost maintained that mindset and continue to do what this quote represents While on the other hand, Kyrie Irving has kind of exemplified the exact opposite of what this quote, I think, is really trying to get across. But it's just I chose the quote because it has been an inspiration to me in the past. Again, when I was younger in like middle school, going into high school. And again, when I was watching LeBron play for the Miami Heat, this is something I heard him say. And it's kind of stuck with me ever since. So I figured, you know what, why not throw it on visionaries? Again, we we looked at quotes, John, that you have seen in your life that have inspired you many, many different quotes. So I figured, you know what, why not bring in one that I know that I've seen in my younger years that really, really stuck with me all the way up until now and probably will stick with me for the rest of my life just because of what I want to achieve. Definitely a great place uh, to have the conversation. I'm so glad that you selected the quote. Yeah, it was a great quote that I wanted to select. But John, moving on to our next segment, who did you select to be our latest inductee into the Handprints Hall of Fame? The latest acclaimed member of the Handprints Hall of Fame is none other than esteemed, I want to say British hero, but I'm going to cast that aside in favor of saying just hero, Alan Turing. So as uh, we like to say here, uh, picture Mr. Turing outside Grumman's Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard placing his hands in the dirt, thereby enshrining his presence there forever. Alan Turing, just a little bit of background, British scientist, mathematician, engineer, actually came up with a way to understand the codes that the Germans were using during, uh, during the Second World War. Now, utilizing the work of Turing, the things that he was able 
to accomplish with respect to helping the allies ward off the access powers, his contributions to humanity writ large are maybe the most impressive um, of anybody that we have been so fortunate to enshrine on this program. Alan Turing was also a gay man and he was a gay man living during an era. It's interesting when he is the subject of the uh, 2014 critically lauded film, The Imitation Game. But if you were to just sort of hear anecdotally the story of Turing, you and someone left off the labels of, oh, uh, World War II and took away sort of date signifiers like that, you would think his story was maybe something that happened in uh, medieval times. And yet, because of his sexual orientation, his own country cast him aside, made him live the rest of his life trying to get these uh, hormone treatments, trying his very best to survive in a country that he essentially saved that didn't want him because of his sexual orientation. Unfortunately, Turing would take his own life, but his contributions to world peace, it's that eternal, what would I, if I had one wish, what would I want? World peace. He's the one guy that actually did his part to see that that happened. And yet his own country persecuted him in the worst imaginable ways possible. So we want to go ahead and enshrine Mr. Alan Turing. You are this week's latest inductee into the Handprints Hall of Fame. Santino, what are some of your thoughts on, on Turing and his uh, selection into our Handprints Hall of Fame this week? I think it was a great selection by you. And I also think that it was a little bit different from our other selections, I feel like, because a lot of our other selections kind of really, really focus on, or I don't want to say they really focus on, but we always try to encompass our latest inductees within the theme of blindness, obviously, because that is kind of our, one of our themes of the podcast, but I liked how we kind of went in a different direction a little bit with Alan Turing. Um, it was very interesting to, you know, hear about, excuse me, how his, how he took his own life, obviously after he was outed as gay and how, again, his own country kind of just cast him aside and treated him, treated him terribly despite everything that he had accomplished in his life. Um, so I really do think it was a good selection. There were some fun facts that I found about him. He was an Olympic level runner. He participated in sports such as rowing. Um, so he was, he, he was an athlete on top of everything else that he was able to do his best marathon time in 1948. He ran a two hour and 46 minute marathon, which was only 11 minutes slower than the Olympic winning time that year. So he was close to an Olympic level athlete in terms of, you know, doing the marathon, which is pretty incredible. So I think just a great selection overall. Um, and yeah, it was just a, another, again, good selection by you. So the movie that I mentioned earlier, The Imitation Game, uh, it is a pretty terrific film. Benedict Cumberbatch, Doctor Strange portrays. You got nominated for an award for that, right? 
Uh-huh. Yeah, no, the movie garnered a couple of uh, Academy Award nominations. I don't believe it won any award of note, but yeah, it was part of the awards conversation that particular year. And it really brought the Alan Turing story to a considerably wider audience. I'll be candid. I hadn't heard of Alan Turing before I saw The Imitation Game um, in 2014. And once you know, I saw the film, I felt like something of a dunce as, I went, wow, this guy that made such a monumental impact on the trajectory of world history. And I have just never heard of the guy. <sighs> An incredible story. But again, the type of thing where, okay, you hear that this hero was persecuted because of his sexual orientation. He was forced to receive these uh, crippling hormone injections, a, a lot of different things that were imposed upon him by his own government simply because of his sexual orientation. You hear all that and you go, oh, well, that must have been something that happened in like the 1800s. You know, nope, nope. And actually wasn't even pre-Allies versus Access. It was post that. It happened after the Second World War. And um, it's uh, a really incredible story. And his achievements are so incredible that, yeah, we, we felt that it was worthy of selecting him as this week's latest inductee into the Anne Prince Hall of Fame. Definitely. Moving on to our next segment, Profiles Encourage. John, let the people know what we're going to be talking about today. So I thought it was interesting this week as, you know, we looked at a quote from NBA superstar and Santino Maoni's, uh, one of his personal heroes, LeBron James. And thinking about that quote, I couldn't help but also consider the recent focus that has been paid to mental health in professional sports and really in the popular discourse uh, writ large. So as somebody who, you know, just turned 36 years old, I did not grow up with social media and I thought it would be fascinating to have a bit of a back and forth between Santino and I on the subject of social media and its impact on mental health. And this was inspired, at least in part, by people like Kevin Love, uh, I believe DeMar DeRozan, coming forward uh, and you know, expressing their actual stories, that they actually contended with issues of mental health and that social media was at least in part, a factor as to why. So again, as somebody that did not grow up with social media, it's kind of an intergenerational conversation we're going to be having here. So uh, let's start with a question. So Santino, you have grown up with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let me ask you, how old were you when you first started using those particular uh, social media platforms? The first social media platform I was ever given access to was Snapchat when I was in seventh, seventh grade in middle school. And I was ecstatic when my mom finally allowed me to use it because I had a lot of friends that were using it before I was. 
And I was kind of a late bloomer when it came to social media because a lot of my friends had access to it, like going into middle school as like a sixth grader, um, which I guess is like about 12 years old, if I'm not mistaken, like 11, 12 years old. They all had access to it at that point. I didn't get access till about like a year later, 13 or 14, because I have an earlier birthday. So yeah, it was around 13 years old. And the first thing I got access to was Snapchat. And then I don't remember exactly when it was like Instagram and everything else, but everything else kind of came slowly after that. And your first kind of interactions with friends, um, your first thoughts really when you began, I know you said that, you know, you had friends that had already been on the various social media outlets and platforms, but when you got on and you started seeing what people were posting, be they pictures, um, the thoughts of uh, various individuals, how did you feel about this new, you know, not insignificant uh, component that had entered your life? At first, I was really happy because it was just a way for me to be able to communicate with my friends and just talk with, you know, talk with kids that I'd never really been able to talk with before. I will say, though, social media opens up a lot of different avenues, especially when you're that young. You get exposed to a lot of different you, you just get exposed to everybody's lives. You're exposed to the outside world where you people have access now to be able to add you. Like, let's say you have a public account because you can have private and public accounts on Instagram. If you have a public account, anybody can add you whenever they want. Like they can go view your profile. So you are I, I don't think I realized it first when I first got social media, like as you know, as young as I was how much exposure you're really putting you're putting out there for yourself and just how much you're being exposed to on the other end as well when i think about i'm not a father yet but you know if when that does happen what i would tell my son my daughter of you know a million different things uh would be you know live your truth be who you are own who you are be proud of who you are and uh, don't allow how you're perceived to impact your mental health or just how you're feeling on an everyday basis. Have you ever had any situations where the negative side of social media, of the various platforms, or folks you know, maybe moments or occasions where those platforms had a negative impact? 100% both personally and, you know, both with myself and with people that I know. Um, in terms of like examples I could give, there are plenty of accounts, you know, a, a big thing nowadays, especially with TikTok, is a lot of my, my myself and my friends, we follow like fitness influencers, guys who go to the gym a lot and, you know, who like who will promote, having a healthy mindset, trying to look the best that you can, having a good body, body image stuff, that kind of thing. And, you know, myself and a lot of friends go to the gym and we've all had instances where we are constantly comparing ourselves to what, you know, the, I'll put it in air quotes, the best fitness influencers. Oh, they have the best body. Oh, they have abs. They have this, they have that, et cetera, et cetera. And of us always looking at that and going, damn, I wish I had that. Like, okay, like I have to do this, this, and this, and this, and this, eat like this, work out like that, be super, super strict in order to achieve what, like in, in order to achieve what I want to achieve. And my, my picture of what I think the epitome of fitness looks like, that kind of thing. And 
I feel like that's one of the dangerous things about social media is the comparison and that somebody's life can look so, so, so amazing on social media and behind the screen, they could be struggling more than you are. And you have no idea because they're not putting that out there for you to see. So that's the most deceiving thing. And I think that that's kind of what a lot of the misconception is with social media, especially amongst teenagers and myself is that we look what we see, we look at what we see on social media and take it as real life. When a lot of the times it's not, like, you know, you could, you could see what people are posting. They could be in a picture, smiling, laughing, having fun. And then they put the phone down and I'm not saying this is the case for everybody, but they may not be having the, the, the best time. They could be going through a lot, a lot of stuff like, you know, within themselves, mentally external things happening. They could be super self-conscious, which is why they post a lot on social media. Like there's so many factors that you don't take in with it we tend when we look at social media, just to look at the image itself and go, Oh, they have such a, they have a better life than I do. They are living it up. They're just a better, like we, we, we almost take what we see and apply it to ourselves and then self deprecate ourselves based on what we see. And we try to compare and do all that kind of stuff. And it really, really isn't healthy in terms of the negative side of social media. Yeah, definitely. There can be uh, some, absolute pitfalls with respect to, to social media. Now, one of them that I observed is, so I'm uh, someone that really hasn't had a relationship for obvious reasons with pictures, uh, images uh, for quite some time. I just like, I took a million, you know, wedding pictures and a lot of pictures, but I, I again, for obvious, I can't see them, haven't had a relationship with those pictures in many, many years. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were in Las Vegas, and we happened to be inside the latest and greatest casino hotel mega resort on the Las Vegas Strip, which happens to be a little place called Resorts World. And I noticed when we were walking through one of the innumerable corridors inside this massive compound of a mega resort, my wife kept sort of leaning in and saying, everybody is just kind of taking selfie pictures. People are just, you know, like she, she kept pointing, she probably pointed it out five different times in a 45 minute period. And it wasn't just a one-off like, oh, that person, it would be that group of people. They're all taking selfies with fill in the blank in the background with resorts world. They happen to have this insanely large, it's kind of in the shape of a globe. It's uh, akin to a jumbotron, except it's uh, circular, massive, and inside of a hotel casino in the middle of Las Vegas. And people just kept taking pictures of themselves with this thing in the background. And I thought to myself, well, <clears throat> It's not like they're going to be standing there for, you know, an hour. They're not even going to be standing there for half an hour. Let's say, okay, they're basically in this area for like 10 minutes. They are sacrificing, let's say a third of that time to take a picture for social media purposes so that other people can see what they're up to in life but it's not an accurate depiction of the situation 
because the individuals in that particular situation were sacrificing like the limited time that they were going to devote to a situation to how is this going to be seen by the rest of the world. So in short, rather than living their own truth and living their experience, it seems to be kind of the opposite. So in your opinion, for parents uh, that might be listening, for you know younger listeners, what are some kind of, or what's like a healthy relationship or a healthy mentality to have with respect to uh, social media? Don't be too restrictive with it because I, I have friends that are not allowed to use their phones in the bathroom. They can't use it. Um, like I, I've had friends from high school that those rules apply. They can't use their phones past 9 PM like at all. Forget even just social media, but technology as a whole. Cause I feel like social media and technology kind of play hand in hand here. Just don't be too restrictive with it. Parents, because I understand there's going to be part of you that wants to protect your kids. And obviously you still want to have that protective nature and to protect them, obviously. But if you become too restrictive with it, that's only going to drive them closer and closer to have, to want to use social media and almost create an addiction that you don't want. But at the same time, you do need to monitor what they're doing, especially when they first get access to it. Like when I was younger, when I first had access, I was monitored. My mom would follow me on Snapchat just for the purpose of seeing who I would follow, what I was posting, see my story, stuff like that. You do want to have those, you know, set those boundaries with them saying, listen, I'm going to allow you to use it, but I am going to be monitoring what you're doing for a period of time because I need to make sure you, you have the responsibility and you have the wherewithal to know what's safe, know how to properly use it, know what's right and what's wrong when it comes to social media, making sure you're not doing any self-harm or harm to yourself in terms of your mental health and making sure that you're not following people or you're not getting into a situation where somebody is belittling you or you're a victim of cyberbullying, stuff like that. That's another huge thing with social media now is that anybody can contact anybody and cyberbullying became a big thing in my high school. So parents, you need to make sure that you are monitoring them, but don't be too overbearing because you don't want it to be something that you're constantly like trying to take away from them. And we kind of know with kids and teenagers, if you keep telling them no, 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 and keep taking something away from them, they're only going to want it more. They're only going to want to do it more. So you have to make sure you try to find that balance. Not saying it's easy because me, my parents and I went back and forth with it all the time in middle school and high school, but you do need to work at it, communicate with them and try to find that balance because that's where you're going to be able to have that happy medium, I think. So cyberbullying was an issue that I'll be honest. Um, I, I didn't know that that was, um, I didn't realize that was a concept when I was younger, let's say before Facebook came about, I just didn't realize that cyberbullying was a thing that was happening. Uh, but you said that it did play a role at your high school. Um, I, I, I think our audience would, would like to know a little bit more about this cyberbullying and what, you know, parents and, and folks can watch out for and, and what happened um, at your, at your school. Yeah. I mean, it was just cases of kids just going on Instagram and going on Snapchat and kind of just sending hateful messages to each other. It's, I don't remember the exact specifics of what was being said. It was just a matter of kids just not, not respecting each other again, going online and just saying hurtful things. And 
in a way it's worse than it happening in person because with cyberbullying, they're hiding behind a screen. They're not saying it directly to your face. And it's hard to, it's hard to stop it because a lot of times what would happen is a kid would, a kid would have their main account. They would do it from. And then if that account was blocked, they could just easily create more and more. They could create more and more accounts and kind of just request to, to send them direct messages and do stuff like that. So there were, there were constant times where kids were getting harassed on social media, you know, again, getting hateful texts, getting in arguments and fights back and forth. And that's why I say it's important for parents to monitor it because you want to make sure that your, you know, your kids aren't suffering from something like that and aren't, you know, the, the victim of cyberbullying. Because again, it is something that is very, very serious and very, very prevalent nowadays and, will, and is only going to get more prevalent as social media continues to grow and grow and grow as it is right now. So again, the specific wise, I don't remember exactly what was being said because it was like, it was, you know, three years ago, but I just remember we, we had assemblies about it constantly saying like, you know, what is considered cyberbullying, how to treat people on social media, all that kind of stuff. We had, you know, multiple assemblies a year go, like going over it, getting refreshers, stuff like that. Again, parents, that's why I say it's important. You know, you don't want to just take social media away because with its downside, social media obviously is the way that a lot of your kids are going to be communicating with their friends when they're not together. If they're going away to college and they still want to talk to their high school friends, that's going to be the direct way they they keep in touch with each other. And it's also just, it's pop culture. They're, 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 they're seeing what their friends are doing. Twitter is a big way to keep up with sports. Again, like just big things that are happening in the world. Like when Chris Rock got smacked by Will Smith at the, Os- at the Oscars, it was all over Twitter the moment that it happened. Social media is a way for us to keep in touch with what's going on. But at the same time, you need to find that happy medium balance because there are, again, like cyberbullying, cyber there are downsides and you want to make sure that you're monitoring what your kids are doing and making sure they're being safe and they're not being attacked and, you know, just not going through something that nobody should have to go through. And as our nation, as our world indeed, kind of veers away. So when I think about the decades that preceded my own, if I were to summarize, I would call us a nation of emotionally distant workaholics. And perhaps that helps out in the bottom line, your overall production, as if you were merely a cog uh, on an assembly line. But there are some downsides to to being, um, let's say, emotionally withdrawn. And now that we are firmly away from that era and that mode of thinking, mental health has really found itself in the center of the cultural zeitgeist. And we know that social media is a chief component as to how one's own life can be impacted on a daily basis um, through what they're seeing online and what is happening in their lives that are led digitally. So Santino, the younger of the uh, two hosts here of Visionaries has told us that parents need to take an active role here in monitoring what uh, their children are doing on social media, how they're interacting with the various platforms. And as a bit of an older person, 
Um, I would say, for example, I recently watched this documentary. It's about a family uh, with the last name of Hart. They were a family of, I believe, eight. And one of the parents of the family uh, actually drove a van containing all members of the family off of a cliff. Um, everybody died instantly. Now, that story shocked everyone that heard it because this parent had an active social media life where she would constantly post and their lives looked considerably different online from what had actually been taking place. So I hear a story like that and it just kind of gets us to the core of yeah, uh, live your truth, manage social media like any other utility tool in your life with thoughtfulness and um, things will turn out for the best. What would you say, Santino? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that 100 percent. Don't try to, you know, don't try to fake your life on social media. Don't try to make yourself look like more than you are, look like something that you want, that you think people want to see. Just be yourself. And really try not to let social media affect your mental health in a negative way because it definitely can if you allow it to. If you allow yourself to become too consumed in it, it will affect you mentally. And again, like John said, just be true. Don't try to do, don't try to post things or make yourself look a certain way or make yourself do certain things to, to create this image that you think people will like or that people want to see or people want you to be, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's move on to our next segment, representation and respect in the media, where we take a look at a piece of pop culture, something in the world, the zeitgeist, if you will, and how it rendered folks in uh, the disabled, marginalized communities, uh, which we like to highlight on this particular program. So this week, I got to choose uh, the piece of pop culture, and I selected the 2014 hit film, The Fault in Our Stars. The movie stars Shailene Woodley, Ansel Elgort, Willem Dafoe, and Laura Dern, and it comes from a John Green uh, young adult novel, which is all of the characters uh, or the principal characters in the book, they're all dealing with uh, cancer. So before we get into that, Santino, uh, was this the first time that you'd ever seen The Fault in Our Stars or, or had you seen it before? This is the first time I had seen it in full. Um, and I, I had read the book and I will say it was not, um, not as good as the book, but it, it was the first time I had seen it in full. Okay. And some of your thoughts that I, I see, I haven't read the book. So just from the perspective of the movie, how did they do with respect to, there's a character named Isaac, um, who is the best friend of the main character in the book. And he's dealing with eye cancer and we have thyroid cancer. Um, I believe Gus is his name, has a form of bone cancer. How do we think they did in terms of their depiction of illness, disability, and um, writing about marginalized communities? 
I think the depiction, I, th- I, I didn't think it was bad. Where, where I really got caught up though was just, I'm kind of getting caught up in comparing it to the book, but it, it's just because once I read, when I read the book, I was captivated by it and I love the book and the movie just in its attempt to recreate kind of what the book elicited it didn't. It didn't do what the book did for me in terms of the fact that they were there were points in the movie where they were meant to be kind of like tearjerker moments, or they were meant to be really, really heavy moments within the movie, and it just didn't convey the same feeling that the book was able to convey. But overall, to answer your initial question, I didn't think they did a bad job in terms of co- conveying people dealing with illnesses, disabilities, whatever word you want to use. I think they were. I think they, excuse me. They were pretty accurate on that part, but. Outside of that, looking at it from the perspective of comparing it to the book, I didn't think the movie was as good as the book. So this is one of those movies that uh, I have a younger sister that um, that she brought to my attention. And my first thoughts upon seeing it were there's this one particular scene where um, the character who's grappling with eye cancer that I touched upon, Isaac, where apropos of very little, he has what I would categorize as an episode where he's triggered and he begins kind of breaking uh, a number of items and throwing a tantrum. Um, and he's in the company of uh, the two other primary characters in the book or in, uh, in the film during this scene. And um, that particular scene was a little... Okay, I've seen episodes um, with respect to people dealing with blindness, specifically uh, people who have had quote unquote tantrums, never seen or approached anything quite like that. Now, that's not to say, oh, it's completely implausible. It's definitely not implausible. Uh, but it was a, a bit mm, melodramatic and overwrought. But is that a problem in the grand scheme of things? I don't really know. I, like, I, I have a feeling that because I approach this as somebody dealing with blindness, that I noticed it, I registered it. Um, I haven't seen, I, I hadn't seen the movie until I rewatched it this week. I hadn't seen it for quite some time. And it was something that stuck with me. Like, well, why did this guy have an absolute freak out apropos of, very little. I don't know, Santino, am I like, uh, I, don't know, I, I feel like I'm in the minority here. I don't know. What were your thoughts on that, on that scene, the moment I'm talking about? I don't know if you're in the minority with that, honestly, just because I, I, I think at least because, because just like, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying with that scene is that in terms of, so did, like, did, did you think, did you think that it was accurate or not really? No, no. It seemed like something called from the soap opera school of screenwriting like yeah. this this isn't something that actually people don't actually just freak out like that over very little and start breaking things yeah i know what you mean i don't yeah i don't think you're in the minority i think it don't think you're in the minority i do feel that it was a little bit over the top like they were trying to um get more out of the scene than, than was actually there and like you said, it was that kind of soap opera drama acting that's that's just again way over the top, super super dramatic 
for some for over something that did not warrant that amount of um like that 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 high level of a reaction and i would categorize it as a little bit inaccurate if you want to use that term or just not um just like not great writing for the moment in terms of what the moment called for i don't think that was what the the, the scene that needed to happen if that makes sense so the, there is a segment in the film where the principal characters, Gus and Hazel, they are afforded the opportunity to go abroad uh, to Amsterdam. And they get this opportunity by virtue of an organization that seems kind of like Make-A-Wish that finances their trip overseas um, because they both have, one has thyroid cancer and the other has bone cancer. Now, when they get to the Netherlands, they're there to meet an author, an author they both truly admire, not to spoil everything, but that meeting with the author doesn't go necessarily according to plan. I did find it interesting, though, and this is going to tie in uh, to what I'm going to talk about in the show's final segment uh, with the I believe it's the Genie uh, Foundation in, uh, in the movie that helps them get overseas. So you'd mentioned that when you read the book, it was one that made an impression with you. Um, it stuck with you. What was it about the book that you found um, compelling? It was honestly just the writing of author John Green. Um, And I just think that Josh Boone, the director, really wasn't able to recapture what John Green put on paper. It just, every moment in the, like every big moment in the movie, when you compare it to the book, the way John Green wrote, the wording that he used, the way he was able to, to vividly describe everything that was happening and really make you feel connected to the characters that's kind of what I found so compelling about the book and why I enjoyed it so much. And yes, the movie, like I said, it was overall an enjoyable movie, I'd say. Again, even though we both agree there were parts that were not as not super accurate, not great in general, just you know, in a movie sense overall. I think the book just had other aspects, mainly the, the writing and just, again, the ability that John Green possessed to connect you with the characters to really make you feel invested in the story that was being told. That's what it was about the book that really made me enjoy it so much and really brought me into the story more than the movie did. As a general rule of thumb, I think this is a takeaway uh, from this conversation. You know, we always hear the adage, oh, the, the book is better than the movie. The book is better than the movie. Well, normally, of course that's the case because a movie has an hour and 45 minutes to tell you its story in entirety. And a book has 200, 300 plus pages. So the time investment with the characters is not particularly comparable. But I guess the same can be said for some of the stuff that even falls outside the principal frame of the story. In this case, the character dealing with eye cancer, uh, Isaac. And I have to imagine, again, I haven't read the book. I think I will read the book, though, now that you've recommended it so highly, you know, that in the movie, I'd imagine that every time 
a director, a screenwriter, etc. They've got to amplify things essentially here. Um, and though it comes off as, yeah, a little bit insincere. Look, we only have an hour and 40 minutes to make a grand point. If you go and read the book, like if you listen to an audio book of The Fault in Our Stars, it's, I'm sure, upwards of at least seven hours. So if there's a movie that you really love, maybe a character from a marginalized community, from the disabled community that you identify with, check and see if it's a book first. And if it's a book, maybe hit that up before you really invest your time in the movie. So it sounds like we are kind of mixed to favorable here, Santino. That sort of seemed like where we landed. Yeah. And the last thing I want to say, though, real quick about books and movies, I'm going to come from a different perspective. If there's a movie that you want to see and there's also a book, I've had multiple experiences. Like I don't know if you ever heard of the Maze Runner uh, trilogy. Yeah, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. I read them. I read all three books and then watched all three movies. The movies, I, I would say, like f- forgetting even the Fault in Our Stars comparison, the Maze Runner movies were ten times worse, probably even more than that than the books. And I did honestly, like, I kind of wish that I was able to watch the movies first because I still would have enjoyed the books regardless. But every time I've read a book before a movie, I end up hating the movie because the movie is never as good as the book. And like you said, because they only have a certain amount of time to fit in the whole story. So things have to be cut out. Things can't be explained as much. Like there's plenty of reasons as to why a movie is worse than a book. But in my opinion, if you want to watch a movie, watch the movie first, because there is a much less likely chance that a movie will ruin a book for you, as opposed to a book ruining a movie, which has happened for me multiple times. Just throw that out there for any listeners who might be considering, you know, that debate. But yeah, we, I think we can agree that we both have the same kind of feelings about the movie. And I would hundred percent recommend for you or anybody that wants to read Fault in Our Stars, go read it. It's a fantastic book. Okay, great, great. I will definitely check it out. So now we're going to move on to final segment of our show. Uh, what's it called, Santino? We have Connecting the Dots, where John every week gives a little bit of a story about, you know, experiences he's had in his life, advice, thoughts on just different situations he's been through. So, John, what are you going to tell us about today? Okay, so very fresh very fresh. This story happened last night, actually. My wonderful wife surprised me. She said, listen, Thursday night, 7 p.m., be ready to leave. We've got a place to go. Where are we going? I'm not going to tell you. Okay, well, um, how do I? Anyway, so we are driving in the car up uh, an enormous hill in the San Fernando Valley, And um, we park our car and we can hear just a a lot of commotion going on nearby. I'm like, okay, well, it's clearly some type of event, but I had no idea what it was. And we walk in and it's a certain type, um, primarily older crowd. Um, People were dressed nice. Um, This took place in Bel Air. So I tried my best to kind of put the pieces together to see what it was that we were attending. I had no idea what 
we were attending was was this a concert was this some type of reading a speech i i had no idea and you know what it was great <laughs> having no idea and rather than because at some point she asked okay should i just tell you like what we're here to do i said you know no if i hadn't figured it out by this point then let us continue and i'll just see what is happening uh, sort of organically. So what ultimately happened, we got placed inside of an auditorium with uh, a couple hundred people, I wanna say. We were in uh, like the third or fourth row and it turned out we were there to see quote unquote an evening or <clears throat> as I guess the event was being billed where my wife saw it um, online. Al Pacino live. And it turned out to be a conversation between a moderator and none other than my favorite actor, star of Sin of a Woman, Al Pacino, for like an hour and a half. But that was followed by a half an hour monologue or scene from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar with Pacino playing the Mark Anthony role and issuing the immortal speech that has the consistent refrain of, and Brutus indeed, he is an honorable man. The whole thing was truly mind blowing, or I mean, living in, I don't know, mind blowing, but it was one of the more memorable experiences um, that she and I have had together. And so here's, where we tie it in. I knew that there was going to be a question and answer portion of the show. And I'm telling the story to illustrate something that I think folks need to always keep in mind. Know when it's your moment and when the moment belongs to someone else. I knew in my heart of hearts that I was dying to ask Al Pacino in person. The guy's 82 years old. He's been my favorite actor since I was a little kid. I was dying to ask him a question about playing a blind person in Scent of a Woman. Now, over the course of the hour and a half Q&A, Scent of a Woman was touched upon a little bit, but I thought of a question. I was armed and ready to ask my favorite actor, one of my pop culture heroes in person about playing a blind person, what that was like and what he had to do in order to prepare for that. But it dawned on me, it dawned on me that number one, I was sitting in the middle of the auditorium there were probably five chairs to my right, five chairs to my left. So typically with question and answer sessions, they will have folks go to kind of stand in a line uh, waiting for the microphone and their chance to ask a question. So in that moment, I told myself, you know, everyone is here to see an inarguable icon of the first order. 
Al Pacino is here and he's 82 years old and this is probably never going to happen again. If I take it upon myself to whip out my cane and figure out how to navigate the way from the center of the auditorium to the side through a pretty thin corridor of other patrons that through like no fault of my own, just, just by virtue of kind of the way that things are, it would sort of draw attention to me. And then if I were to grab a hold of that microphone, cane in hand, sunglasses on, and take it upon myself to go, hey, Mr. Pacino, uh, my name, John Steinberg, a diehard fan. Um, listen, as somebody from the blind community, if I were to take the moment by the hair like that, it would suddenly become about me to a degree that I was not comfortable with at all. So I talked myself out of asking one of my heroes a question. And rather than the version of me that existed like 10 years ago or even five years ago, there's no way that situation would have happened without me asking Pacino a question about Scent of a Woman. But you know, I recently turned 36. I recently became a husband. And as my wife and I look toward the future and our own family planning and everything that's involved with that and the whole maturation process in that moment, when I could have asked him a question, I said, nope, I'm not going to make the moment about me in the slightest. I don't want to take attention away from him. I don't want people to, you know, look at me with the cane. And I just, I don't want to take the focus off of this incredible, incredible session with Al Pacino. So I decided not to do it. Now, I told you I would tie this in to the kind of make a wish or as it's rendered in The Fault in Our Stars, I believe it's Genie, the organizations that will help young people to have once in a lifetime experiences like they do in The Fault of Our Stars with the two principal characters being gifted tickets on a flight overseas to Amsterdam. Now that way of thinking, doing those types of things for young people, Make-A-Wish Foundation, other organizations that are like-minded, those are truly magnificent outlets and services but those are meant for younger people. In The Fault in Our Stars, I believe the characters are 16. I did not, I knew that even if the Q&A session were abbreviated because the rest of the occasion had gone a bit longer, that if I pulled out that cane with the sunglasses, they would let me ask a question even if it took a little bit longer. But again, I just turned 36, I just got married. I am no longer in the age bracket where it's appropriate to think like that. So even though it's never something I would have done in the past, and I'm not sitting here trying to pat myself on the back for it, but I decided it was in the best interest for everyone 
at that event that I did not stand up, get my way over to the side, get in the line for the question and ask the question about portraying a blind person instead of a woman. It was not a moment that was about me. So it wasn't up to me to take the focus in any way, shape or form away from Al Pacino. Knowing and living your truth, essentially. 36 is not 35. 36 is not 16. Be mindful, be thoughtful. And as you get to a certain age, know your role. So that's, um, yeah, connecting the dots. Uh, what, what did you think of um, kind of that story? Super duper fresh because it literally happened last night. Yeah, it's pretty crazy you got to attend that event with Al Pacino, first off. Second of all, if I was, you know, in your situation and that was LeBron James up there, I don't think I would have been able to have the same kind of wherewithal that you did to kind of just be able to say, oh, okay, I'm going to, you know, not go up there and try to, you know what I mean? Like not go up there, try to ask a question. I will say, though, do you have any regrets about the decision that you made just out of curiosity? No, no. Um yeah, I mean, not, I, I went through that whole mental process that, um, that, that I described where, yeah, in those situations, typically, I want a personal, I would like personal interaction. I would like for there to be some type of story that ostensibly I could tell you know, my kids about later in life, grandkids, but taking everything into account I, I, I didn't think it was right for me, even for a minute and a half, to take the focus away from Al Pacino. So, yeah, I did something I would have never done in the past, and I, I didn't ask that question. I can um, being able to do that, though, because, again, if that was me in a situation with, like, one of my heroes, LeBron James, somebody along those lines – I probably, I can say without a shadow of a doubt, I would not have had the wherewithal and almost just the mindfulness to go, okay, this is not the time or this is not the time to be asking the question. Just enjoy the fact that you're here with in the presence of Al Pacino. You know what I mean? Like I would not have been able to do what you did. So I do commend you. Well, thanks, man. And again, five years ago would have been a, would have been a much different story. A couple of years, like two years ago, it probably would have been a different story. But I don't know. There's something about the age of 35 feels kind of like a halfway point, if you will. And then 36 sounds like it's a little bit on the other side of the halfway point. And just, yeah. No, I got you. Yeah. It, listen, yeah. it's, it's, you felt like, and like whatever. You, that feeling was you felt like it wasn't the time and the place and you wanted to just be able to appreciate the fact that you were there with Al Pacino, who again, probably among, among the list of one of the greatest actors of all time, somebody that you've looked up to. That's again, that was just great that you were able to kind of just sit there, take in the moment and go, wow, like I'm with Al Pacino. And that happened last night, which is still crazy, but thank you for sharing that story because I do think it was a good message for people to, for people, people to understand that, you know, in going forward, you don't always have to try to throw yourself into the center of, uh, of, of what's going on. Don't always try to be the center of attention, I guess. Not, not trying to be the center of attention, but you can enjoy things without having to directly interact with what's going on, if that makes sense. But, um, but yeah. 
Absolutely. All right. And uh, it's with that segment coming to a close that the episode comes to a close. So signing off for another installment of Visionaries, I am your humble correspondent and one of your hosts. I am John Steinberg, joined by my co-host, Santino. Tell our audience a bit about where they can find us, follow us, and interact with us. Yeah, you can follow us on Instagram at visionaries underscore podcast. And if you go to our Instagram, hit the link in our bio, you can listen to all these episodes. This is our, I believe, 16th episode. You can listen to all episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you want to send us a DM, talk to us, give us ideas, thoughts, concerns, anything, reach out to us again. We're at, at visionaries underscore podcast on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you guys next time. Talk to you guys later.